back this old Hollywood thing we used to do because you may remember me from such... No. <laughs> Damn it. Not even a minute in. Um, no, no. Because we're actually talking about something very important in regards to Hollywood. That is the Looney Tunes on film. Well, okay, let's specify here because the Looney Tunes, you know, they're, they're on film anyway. You know, most of the old shorts were shown in theaters. They were on film, you know, and professional and things. But what happened when... Looney Tunes characters would show up in actual movies and such, or Looney Tunes sensibilities. And we're going to cover a couple of instances of this today because we figured it would be important. This is not a substantial and, I, like, there are some we're going to miss today. There are one or two we aren't talking about today. Um, right. We'll probably think of others, and there are other, you know, actual projects these directors did. And there's also stuff we've talked about in other uh, forms. Uh, on our Veracon video episode, we talked about the Frizz, uh, the Chuck Jones segment in Stay Tuned. Um, yeah. And that was really good. We've got a, a good five or so movies to talk about here that have included, in some way, both Looney Tunes characters or Looney Tunes filmmaking sensibilities or Looney Tunes filmmakers. And we're going to really just analyze... The, the the sequences themselves in the context of the film, if we can, and why the Looney Tunes need to be there. Yeah, because it's, it's also very fascinating to see how filmmaking tendencies change over the years. I mean, we go from films made in the 40s to films made in the 90s. So <laughs> we cover a pretty large margin of how the Looney Tunes were utilized throughout the decades through their original golden era run to the revival interests in the 1990s yeah so i think that's that's very very intriguing and that's you know it it shows it's a small window but it's a window into how the lean tunes are viewed in the culture yes you know how other filmmakers how people that make actual you know not actual movies but like people who make live action and other types of films view and are influenced by, in one case, uh, the Looney Tunes. And this is going to be a very interesting episode because we're going to be analytical and we're going to be talking about other forms of media. But um, we're also going to be using this episode to um, segue towards uh, what we're doing next week, which you may think you know what we're doing next week, but we've actually... We'll get, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, this is really important. So, um, I suppose we should discuss what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, probably. Um, so, we're discussing sequences from Two Guys from Texas, mm-hmm. My Dream is Yours, mm-hmm. Gremlins 2, Yay! Mrs. Doubtfire, Yay! and 
Revenge of the Pink Panther. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell which ones I grew up with. Um. <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, technically, technically, Jordan, thanks to the Lindsay's Gone Collection, yeah, we grew up with with the first two examples. Yes. <laughs> I, I I am not gonna lie and say I never watched through either of the first two on their Golden Collections uh, drink. So, like, <laughs> I have technically grown up with all these, but I have more of a sincere attachment to yeah. uh, some of the ones we'll be talking about a little after mm. these first two. Oh, yes. But um, yes. we should at least get to these first couple and these pioneering ones, to, which was basically Warner Brothers flexing their own muscles and saying, hey, let's see if we can do this. So... The first movie I have here is Two Guys from Texas. Now, here's what I want to... Because I'm going in with with film contextual things. Mark, other than um, the bug sequence in this or the Looney Tunes sequence in this, what else, before you actually did research on it, did you know about Two Guys from Texas? Oh, before I did research, uh, nothing. Right. And same here. I knew it was just some 1940s comedy of some sort. I didn't know what kind of movie it was. Or what it was in its entirety. And to, to do a disclaimer, either of us have seen this movie, but um, we've, we've done our research. And I have to point out, I tried to watch not the full movie, but at the very least, like the context yeah. behind the Looney Tunes scene. You cannot find this movie anywhere. I no. looked. It's not on HBO Max. It's not on YouTube. Not that you'd so, want to, but not that I really want to. But like, it's like, oh, it's a dream sequence. I'm like, okay. So what led to this character to dream of Looney Tunes? And I have no idea. This movie, um, which this is a 1948 release. Um, this movie, Two Guys from Texas. First of all, did you know it was a sequel to a movie called Two Guys from Milwaukee? Um, not until I did research. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't know until doing the research that the two guys movies, and coincidentally, there were only two of them, um, were Warner <laughs> Brothers' attempt to take out a competitor, which is not the first time we're going to be talking about that concept in this episode. <laughs> um, no. Because Paramount, famously, I might add, uh, had a series of buddy comedies in the 1940s. The, the Road to movies with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and occasionally Dorothy L'Amour. And they were really successful because Bob Hope and Bing Crosby worked really well together. They were a well-established duo and all the, a lot of their movies, even if you may not, I've said, they may not be completely like accessible these days, you know the Road to movies. Family Guy has done pastiches of this sort of thing. And Warner decided, hey, we're going to try and do that and do some fun buddy musicals in the 1940s. And so they did the two guys movies, including two guys from Texas. And instead of getting an established and well-known duo like Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, they instead had Jack Carson and Dennis Morgan. Now, who are they? Yeah, um, most lay people have never heard of either of these two people. Um... Of the many 1930s and 40s buddy duos in comedy, this is not one of the ones that have survived. Um, I think the whole thing is that Jack Carson is the sort of the 
the the heavier set stockier and one and Dennis Morgan is the more good looking but also more uh accident prone one um and yeah I mean <laughs> I wonder why this isn't well regarded now Jordan I will say in doing research so like I said I tried to find the movie I couldn't. Yeah. So I looked up the trailer. Oh, okay. Which you can find on YouTube. Um, it's one of those movies. You know, like, it's so funny how, you know, we're at a time where we're like, oh god, everything's like a Mar, is like the same Marvel movie, like the same DC movie. There was a time where every movie tried to be an MGM musical. Yes. Or Paramount musical in one way or another. Hell, you can argue that the, the Road 2 movies were send-ups of those musicals, which is what made them so endearing. Exactly, because they, they played with the tropes. They were the thing by making fun of the thing. Yeah. You know, that, that's why Singing in the Rain is a fantastic film. Yeah. It, it is that. It is, but it's also having fun with it. Exactly. This is... It is the thing. Yeah. You know, like, there's one... The you know going back to the, the big and and uh, Bob Hope comparisons in the trailer, the first joke is like, "Hey man, you think I'm ridiculous? Look at Dennis!" And then Dennis comes in, and he's dressed equally as Southern. Um, so just, just a, a very brief plot line of the movie for those who care. Yeah. Um, there's song and dance man named Steve and Danny. It's it's Dennis and Jack. We're not gonna bother with that. Um, their car breaks down in Texas. They go do shenanigans. Their car gets stolen by thieves, so all of a sudden they're they're hunt they're hunted down for committing a, a bank robbery, I believe. And shenanigans ensues. They wind up at a um at a rodeo because it's Texas, and eventually they find a way to clear their names. And something to point out. Because this shows up in the animation, and I feel we get no context from this, but it's a running gag where an overweight American Indian woman has been tugging at Foster, whoever's playing Foster's arm throughout the movie. Foster assumes that she's in love with him, but she only wants to introduce him to her beautiful daughter, which Foster happily accepts. Yes. And this is such a prominent running gag that's in the animation. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, the joke of this is, oh no, an overweight Native American woman wants to fall in love with me. But the punchline is, oh no, she only, she only wants to introduce me to her probably hot younger daughter. Which, oh, the 40s were a time, weren't it? Um, <laughs> yep. yeah, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just a lot of like 1940s tropes. You know, there's a love triangle thing with a guy that's obviously supposed to be the villain. There's wacky shenanigans on a Texas ranch. You know, obviously he gets the girl, obviously the, the heroes win out. There's a running gag about Dennis Morgan being afraid of animals or something, or it might've been Jack Carson is afraid of animals, but I, I who fucking cares? Um, but this sequence we should probably get into. The whole bit of it is that Jack Carson is explaining to his psychiatrist about a recurring dream he's had. And it segues into this, which is 
very much and and I know that these first two are only like a year or so apart, but this is very much reminiscence of very mid forties Looney Tunes. Like even as far as you know, a lot of the stock tropes and, and places where the humor is from, because this, which is supposed to be a parable for Carson's struggles in film with the leading lady, and is a whole thing where you know he's play, he's this sort of musician that's enticing the lambs over or something in a in a, in a in a meadow, and Dennis Morgan character comes in, dresses up as a wolf, and woos them with a little whistle. It's a variation on Swooner Crooner, I believe. Yes. Which is interesting, because that's not Frizz's cartoon, because Frizz did this sequence. Yeah, as a caption short, so it's this weird thing where we're seeing a variation on a cartoon that I remember liking pretty well. So no crooner's all right. So it, it's strange. It's like, well, of course, some of these jokes are going to work because they worked in Swooner Crooner, which no. came out before this, yeah. correct? Or it was did, after yes. This? Yeah, the before or on yeah. the same so. yes. A lot of the jokes in Swooner Crooner worked because they were, the animation was sending up people like, you know, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. Whereas... Will audiences know that, oh, that's supposed to be um, Jack Carson. That's supposed to be Dennis Morgan. Like, they're just guys at this point. They, they don't have, you know, you, you really don't, their characters aren't well-defined enough to work. Okay, something that this short doesn't do them very good in is that, um, how, journal question for you, how old do you think these sheep are? That's the thing, because there's one joke where they pan down and they're wearing, like, schoolgirls socks or something. Because Dennis and Jack in this. Now, with, 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 um, with Swooner Crooner, Bing and Frank, you're animated like chickens. So it makes it a little bit more okay. They're all chickens. And the women in that short are animated and voiced to be a little bit older than, say, 16. Um... Jack and Dennis, how they're drawn, they're drawn like they're in their mid-30s. Yeah, they're grown-ass men. They're grown-ass men. And the sheep are drawn like they're 16, 17. So there's a bit of this icky factor going on here where it's like, okay, what you doing? What are you doing here? This ain't all right. Yeah. And it doesn't help that when when the sheep run off, uh, Jack or Dennis or whatever goes. Hey, where you going? Hey, wait a minute, kids. Hey, night. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> Come on. You're not yeah. making this easy. The whole thing is that, you know, Dennis Morgan's character is actually good at, at, at bringing the sheep in and... Uh, uh, Jack Carson's isn't and can't sing as well or something. Again, it, it would be a lot better if we... Yeah, I mean, may, may, maybe even in the context of the movie, but I don't even know in the context of the movie because these actors are not as well-defined as people like Bob Hope and Gene Kelly. Also, Bugs is in this. We haven't even mentioned that. Um, oh, yeah! <laughs> Bugs shows up briefly. Bugs Bunny, who... I watched the trailer. because I, I, I watched the entire trailer. I'm like... Oh, we're not showing any footage from the sequence. Maybe this was a surprise. Yeah. Maybe it's like, holy shit. Can you imagine that? 
You're watching a movie and all of a sudden Bugs Bunny shows up? I don't know how what that feels like. Totally. Don't know at all. No. Anyways. <laughs> Bugs a very Bunny's, brief cameo. Bugs Bunny Bugs Bunny is advertised in the trailer like Bugs Bunny's in the movie. I counted. Bugs Bunny's in this movie for 30 seconds. It's that wolf. Every time I collect a bunch of lambs, he steals them away from me. Let me give you a word of advice, chum. Give me a duck. Now I'll tell you what to do. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Eh, forget it. Always glad to help out a chum. Chump, that is. <laughs> That's and it. he literally just shows up, doesn't really crack wise that much other than uh, making fun of um, Jack Carson, the character, to, to camera, which, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't blame him. But yeah, he basically just pops up, gives Jack Carson some advice, and isn't in the rest of the bit. Which, I'm not sure if the rest of the bit could really have been saved by Bugs, but... Um, yeah, it's it's just... But it is exactly that. It's a very brief cameo. Yes. And um, it's it's whatever. It doesn't really do much. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, there's not a ton of true Looney Tunes gags in this sequence, but there's one or two that, are, that very much have these 1940s um, gag sensibilities. Um, maybe not befitting as to where they were going in this point in 1948, but very much... Like, like, yeah, a lot of this is at home with what Warner was doing in the middle of the decade. Now, is it as funny as some of that stuff? Not really. But I mean, is it as good as, as Swooner Crooner, even with some of the redressed animation from Swooner Crooner in here? No. But, you know, it, it. the thought is there, the effort is there, and it definitely looks like a Frizz Freeling cartoon. Um, and, yeah, we end with the outdated, terrible 1940s stereotype running in and chasing Jack Carson off into the distance. It's not great. <laughs> Just watch Swooner Crooner. Just watch Swooner Crooner, yeah. There's, it has likable characters that you know who they're parodying. And look, th that sounds like we're being a bunch of, oh, you darn kids, you don't know the majesty of Jack Carson and, and <laughs> no. Dennis. Well, no, we don't, but good material should stand on its own. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sorry, the personalities of these two Bland actors who, sorry, no, there has to be more to it than just, is it funny how we got these two actors to work alongside Bugs Bunny? It's like, okay, it's endearing, but it's not great. You know, I mean, like, the difference is that at least we know who people like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra are, and we can recognize, oh yeah, they're doing these impressions in Swoonercrunch. And at points, we even know some of the more obscure people like the 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 one guy in all the the early Hollywood ones, it's always Dower, the um, the the, the Squidward sounding guy. Um, I am. Or or Jerry Colonna or um, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry. No. <laughs> Could you imagine Seinfeld but with him? But ding ding Hello. <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, yeah. The, the sequence, it, it gets the job done. Yes. It's something you can advertise in the trailer. 
to get kids to maybe see her movie, which goddamn, this must have this this, this must have pissed off some kids, right? Oh, he's, like, oh, he's just in this. I have to watch these assholes now. <laughs> exactly. It's like oh. I could I could go watch a freaking. I mean, I did look and see if a Bing and uh, Bob film was playing at the same time. I sure. It'd be funny not. if it was, and that's why this didn't oh make a lot of God. money. <laughs> And also, I don't know if you guys have guessed this by now, but there was no Two Guys 3. They stopped after this one. There were no more. They would work together in other movies, but it wasn't under the Two Guys label. No, they wouldn't be Two Guys. There'd be this guy here and then this guy here. Um, But not Two Guys. No, that's specific. It's, It's... it's only it's only in the two guys part of France is that allowed to be. Oh two guys. man! Um, but Jordan, can you imagine if they made it to five? That way they could have called it Five Guys. It's just <laughs> these two trying to operate a burger joint. Well, I don't know if that would be funny because I don't know who they fucking are. But um, <laughs> I don't fucking know. I will say that the 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 termite terrorist guys, um, either endearingly or ironically. Uh, remembered this movie because they, on a couple of occasions, um, decided to, to do a pun name of their shorts uh, after Two Guys from Texas. Uh, Two Gophers yeah. from Texas, which is a, a Goofy Gophers cartoon. And I think there's another one that Frizz called, like, I think Two Crows from Payhouse or something. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it, it says something about your movie... Where, like, half of the Wikipedia page is just about the Bugs Bunny sequence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, it's a cute sequence, but Swooner Crooner does it better. <clears throat> Bugs is barely in it. And the joke at the end sucks. It's it terrible. It really does. Didn't um, need to be there. No, it really it didn't. It's just, you know, it's like, hey, we can do this. And can you, though? I'm giving this a 2 out of 5 Anvil rating. I give it a 2.5, but I'm probably being too modest. Moving on now. So, you'd think that by now, Jack Carson would have quit that darn rabbit. But no! Because <laughs> the next But year, no! But no! Oh, I gotta work with Mr. Long Ears, huh? Belushi in a Bugs movie I would have liked, but... Um, that would amazing, but yeah. no. Uh, so, the next film is My Dream is Yours. Uh, it came out on April 16th, 1949. Nothing of interest happened that day. The sequence was once again directed by Frizz Freeling. Right. Um, and... Yeah. yeah. And I have a theory... About about the sequence, yes. but Jordan, if you have any, if you, if you have any background for, I well, I do, um, because I did research on the movie. Um, <laughs> I can only assume Warner Brothers was really trying to make Jack Carson a thing because he is the marquee star of this one, and this was a full fledged musical of the time with Jack Carson and Doris Day and uh, what's her name, um, Eve Arden, who. <laughs> Eve Arden, who we shat on a little bit in the 50th anniversary special. Uh, yeah, this Eve Arden has worked with the Looney Tunes, but she wasn't even in this fucking sequence. So maybe don't exaggerate that, Eve. Oh, I don't know. He seemed like a nice guy. Anyway, um, as, as musical plots go, My Dream is Yours is pretty basic. It's very much like a, you know, man discovers talents 
working in a low-class place, decides to boost her to uh, stardom on the radio. There are rises and falls, and there's alcohol and corruption. But, of course, our heroes end up okay in the end. Um, I haven't seen it, but I get, I get shades of some of like a traditional Vincent Minnelli or, or Stanley Donen musical from this one. Um, although what's interesting is it's directed by Michael Curtiz. Uh, Michael Curtiz was Warner Brothers' big flagship director at the time. He had done such uh, <laughs> career-making films as Adventures of Robin Hood and Casablanca, amongst many, many, many others. Yeah. Legit. Yeah, this is Michael Curtiz, like that Michael Curtiz. Like, he, he's been one of Warner's main guys. He was able to basically get away with murder um, as a director <laughs> of a lot of their projects. And... Yeah, they really liked him, and so by the end of the same decade where he wins Best Director on Casablanca, uh, he's doing My Dream is Yours with Doris Day and Jack Carson. Oh, how the mighty fall. Um, oh, and Bugs Bunny. <laughs> well, it's better here than the other one, but, you know, we'll get to that. So what's your theory? So, even as a child, and this is on the going, the same going collection as the two guys from Texas sequence, because there's the first volume, so like, put all the clips on there, why not? So, this came out in 49. There was a movie that came out in 1945, um, uh, produced by MGM, yep. called Anchors Away. Yep. It starred uh, Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. Very... Very beloved MGM musical in which its most famous sequence was as a child. It, it blew my mind. Is there's a sequence where, because it's an MGM production, where Gene Kelly is telling this story to a bunch of children about what he did in the Navy because he, he plays a Navy SEAL. <laughs> I, I don't know the term. So he gives this fancy story about how you know, he taught the the king of this land to dance. And we go to this animation that's done by Hanna-Barbera. And, and because it's Hanna-Barbera, and it's theatrical Hanna-Barbera, this isn't Flintstones Hanna-Barbera, this is theatrical short-making Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, they're, they're putting in the work. Yeah, so the king is Jerry the Mouse. And Tom is his servant. It's Tom and Jerry. It's great. Which is great. It really is, yeah. And Jerry has a voice, but it's not bad. Take note. It's actually, you know, and, you know, it's it's live action Gene Kelly talking to Jerry about, like, oh, the kingdom has banned dancing. And he's like, oh, why'd you do that? And Jerry's like, well, I don't know how to dance. So in order to not like a fool, I banned dancing. So it's the John Lithgow from Footloose terminology. Yes. Imagine John Lithgow. He was a tiny mouse. <laughs> oh, I think we all have. Oh, yes. <laughs> Every night. So. <laughs> so. Breaking. <laughs> Mark makes it sexual. Um, yes. So. There's this endearing Boy. sequence that still charms the pants off of anyone today. That's great. Where Gene Kelly dances with Jerry the Mouse, and it's a lot of fun. It's fun. You've seen it. If you're at all into animation, you've seen this sequence. Yeah. And um, 
And I, 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 I watched a behind-the-scenes Tom and Jerry documentary years ago as a teen that, that talked about them making it. And the re- one of the reasons it's such an incredible sequence mm-hmm. is Gene Kelly's dancing on, like, a reflective floor. So you can see his reflection. So the animators had to animate Jerry's reflection yeah. on the floor as he's dancing. And it's great. Hell yeah. And it's so it's so great. If I going back to Family Guy because Seth MacFarlane loves these movies, one of the best cutaway gags uh, from Family Guy is a complete send up of Anchors Away, where Stewie is digitally inserted into the sequence. So it's Gene Kelly and Stewie doing the dancing, <laughs> and. They didn't remove Jerry's reflection from the floor, so you just look at the floor, you see it's still Jerry. <laughs> it's just, it's so silly, but... It's something Seth MacFarlane would definitely do. Oh my gosh, yeah. So, they do this scene in 1945. Anchors Away was a decent success. It, it, it brought in $7.5 million or $2.5 million budget, so it, it, it made money back, kind of. It's a hit, yeah. But... The sequence left a big impact. You know, if you see Anchors Away, you gotta remember two things. Gene Kelly and Tom and Jerry. Everyone, all of a sudden, paying attention. Oh, look, the Tom and Jerry are really good. So, Warner Brothers, around that time, if I had to guess, um, saw what uh, they were doing over at MGM and went, We want that! Hey! Call Frizz. Let's see if we can get our own little nice Anchors Away-like sequence that can entertain children for decades. Yes, but you see, the problem that they had was that they didn't have Gene Kelly. They had Jack Carson. Jack Carson's a lot of things. He's no Gene Kelly. No, he's not. And I know what you're thinking, but they have Doris Day. This was like early Doris Day. She wasn't like... This was one of her first big ones. Her yeah. first big role. She wasn't like major star Doris Day yet. So, by all accounts, the biggest leads of this movie that would get you to want to see it... Now, given I did not get to see the trailer for this movie before we went on, but if I had to guess, I would assume Bugs is a pretty big push for this thing. Probably. You know? Well, well I, I actually know. That... And probably from the director of Casablanca. I think that would probably help too. But um, but yeah, my theory is that Warner Brothers demanded the sequence be put in so they can have it anchors away like success and, you know, get more public interest in the Looney Tunes perhaps. Right. And um, I saw the anchors away sequence just on its own. For years, you know, you just turn on TCM at any time. Oh, look, it's the Anchors Away sequence with Jerry. You watch an AFI top 50 best movie moments. Oh, hey, it's the Gene Kelly Jerry sequence. That's awesome. The very first time I saw this sequence, recovering right now, was on the Golden Collection. Yeah. yeah. And, um,. <clears throat> Not to jump ahead too much, but um, it's no Jerry and Gene Kelly. <laughs> well, of course not. It was never going to be because they don't have Gene Kelly. No. But we should at least analyze this, you know, in its own right, rather than just in comparison to the Anchors Away. Because obviously, if you're going to compare this to Anchors Away, it, it's not going to be as good. But 
this is still like, you know, so if, if, if we can get into it, um, the conceit of this is that Jack Carson's son, Freddie, I think, and is no. sleeping. No. <laughs> no. Okay. No, Doris first... Day's son, yes. Freddie? Yes, Doris okay. Day's son. I was close. All right. Again, I haven't seen the fucking movie. All right. Um, I, I will make up to, I will make up for in spades with any of the next three. Jordan, I, I saw okay, so there's a clip online of like the of like the, the scene before it gets to the Bugs Bunny sequence. And literally the first line, like we cut to Jack Arson reading the Bugs Bunny comic, and yeah. the first line at Doris Day's lips is Are you my daddy? <laughs> so yeah, not his kid. Or maybe he is. Okay. I didn't see how the movie ends. You never it turns know. out. Okay. I don't know. Anyways. But yeah, he's, he's reading a bedtime story to Freddy and whatever. And Freddy uh, eventually lulls off to sleep. And his dream is... And this is actually very interesting. His dream is basically an Easter bonanza on a, stown, on a sound stage featuring a very well-animated atop live-action footage Bugs. Um... And here, especially versus the two guys from Texas one, Bugs feels more himself, more well-defined, oh more yeah. in line with um, the later Golden Age Bugs. Um, just the beginning of this, the vocal quality in the beginning of this, where Mel Blanc is first very gently trying to wake Freddy up. Freddy, time to get up. It's That's great. That's yeah. That is that is the Warner Brothers sensibility that works in this era, and also just Mel Blanc screaming is always funny. So <laughs> it is. I will say though, in one of the in one of the shots where um, Freddie is supposed to be sleeping, you can see he's the actor's not <laughs> he's not sleeping at all. He's just sort of waiting for the next cue or whatever. I'm like all right, fine, uh, whatever. You're six, hey. but um, I don't know if I want to do this here at the end, but I. I thought about, because a lot of these, I, I thought about the sort of, like, the question of why is Bugs Bunny here? Why are the Looney Tunes here? I didn't have a chance to do that in the first one because there was no reason for that to be there. But why is Bugs Bunny here in this sequence? And and the whole meat of the sequence is this song number, which is called uh, Freddy Get Ready, which is set to Hungarian Rhapsody number two, which is the, um, you know, the... Um, I never knew until today that that was what it was, but um, and it's honestly a very clever arrangement of that because it's, I mean, I will say there's no irony to the cut to um, Doris Day and Jack Carson in full bunny suits dancing around. Oh I mean, my! They just play that pretty straight. Also, I will say that there is some decently impressive um, animation, live action interaction. Because there's a moment where yeah. Buzz like, hey, Freddy, wake up. And he's holding on to, to Fred's blanket yeah. and he's lifting like the blanket that. up and down, which is probably like a fish line. But still, it's like, oh, interaction. <laughs> That's yeah, nice. No, they, they, they do some cool things here. But yeah, this song sequence is honestly pretty good. Um, it's it's a clever arrangement of this song. Um, the Both performers sing it pretty well, although I think Doris Day is a little bit more ho- at home here. Uh, it's a number that's well written and makes sense. The whole thing is they're trying to get Freddy to get out of bed and get ready. 
and and get clean and, and things. And it's 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 cute and, and bugs joining in with these two is fun. Um, as it gets more into the you know, dun, 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 we we get a, a very fun gag where, where Tweety shows up and and does his <laughs> trademark line in time with the song next to a stuffed cat. That was pretty cute. Put on your shirt, put on your pants. You better get dressed, I'll give you one more chance. Put on your shoes, put on your hat. I told I tore a party hat. Going back to my why is Bugs Bunny here question, I think this really goes back to... That I was thinking about this in, in, in context of these, and it goes back to the myth of the American musical in this era, like the sort of happy fantasy world where anything can happen and magic is everywhere, um, which will be sort of getting into as well next week. But um, I think that Bugs being in this number enhances it a great deal from just uh, Doris Day coming into the room and saying, Freddie, get up and get dressed or whatever, or singing it. It goes into a child's mind and gives a really wild, fun musical number from his perspective, rather than the romantic comedy perspective the rest of the film lies at, where it's about Doris Day and Jack Carson. This is the innocent way this kid sees his parental figures as two kind but forceful stuffed rabbits who guide him along and are friends with Bugs Bunny. This is how a, cute, a kid views our heroes, and it's a contrast from the rest of the film, which is about the trials and tribulations of radio fame and business and drinking and yada yada. It's, it's a nice contrast from what I can understand the rest of the movie is. And while obviously it's no anchors away, it's a very interesting juxtaposition that we have this very happy, very joyous um, kids musical number with Bugs Bunny in here and that it actually like, like the our performers actually bounce pretty well off of Bugs and vice versa and I mean tackiness and corniness aside this works yeah I mean this short uses it's Bugs Bunny the, in the best way it, it, it possibly could given this scenario yeah, I mean obviously Obviously, Bugs is going to, like, slap Jack Carson and, like, explode him up. As much as we want him to. As much as we want him to. But, um, Bugs does a really good job in this era where they, they weren't, where they didn't care if the kids watched these cartoons to be like, yeah, we're just going to have Bugs be the spokesperson. We're going to have him, like, represent the inner childhood imagination of what could be. And I, it's, I mean, look, it's lame. Okay, the the song is lame. It's creative, but like, it's very lame. But it's 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 good at what it's doing. It's very lame, but um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's a very example of the character. I do like the shtick he's able to do before singing the song, and of course, and Doris Day are having a fun time. Me after yeah. wearing a bunny costume, you know, just. Doesn't that was sort of fun day on set? Okay, so in this sequence, you're going to be dressed like bunny and rabbits. And we won't look like fools? Oh, you absolutely will be. But get in the costumes. I'd read a Casablanca, goddammit. I know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> You already look like fools. You're in a movie that's clearly ripping off a Gene Kelly movie from another studio. Yeah. Um, It gets the point across. And it's doing it in, in as earnest uh, as a way as it could. So yeah, I I can't really ha- I can't really hate this that much, honestly. So you know, it's yeah, eh, it's okay. I mean, I th- I think it's it it works a little bit more than I think you do, but um, 
it's more than just having brand recognition, which is what the last one was, but I think it actually oh my gosh, yeah. does some stuff right. <clears throat> I gave it a 3.5, even though you might think that's too high. That's nah, right. I'm giving it a uh, 3 out of 5 animals. Figured. Okay. On to the good ones. Um, <laughs> all right. Gremlins 2, the new batch. A movie I have seen and I love. Mark, I assume the same? Yes, yes. Okay, good. For those of you who don't know, uh, the Gremlins movies are fucking great. Uh, Joe Dante directed them in the mid-80s and early 90s. Uh, They have some amazing animatronics, great voice acting, great slapstick sensibility. They're a wonderful monster movie if you want to be a little bit traumatized as a kid. Um, They're perfect starters if you want to get into horror at an older age. I'm saying this like, like, like kids are listening to us. Kids aren't listening to us. I mean... Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, my my uh, my uh, Spotify wrapped in say age thirteen. I really really love the show. Yeah, we're big with the ten year olds. No, why? Sure, <laughs> eat your vegetables, kids. Um, Gremlins too. If you don't, we'll shove them up your ass. Anyway, so <laughs> so okay. Just to make sure you all know what's going on. This is the second time today that I've done a pretty, you know, appropriate joke. And Mark has been the one that just completely throw it over the line of taste. Usually, it's the other way around. Uh, What's happened? I don't know. So, Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2 is fucking great. But yeah, um, the opening of the film features our heroes, the Looney Tunes, and the opening and ending of the film are directed by Chuck Jones. Okay, should we analyze the the scene first, or should we analyze why the the Looney Tunes are here first? Let's do why the Looney Tunes are here first. Um, So, we we said this in our Back in Action episode, but um, Joe Dante kind of gained a friendship with Chuck Jones, uh, starting with, I believe, the first Gremlins movie, where he reached out to Chuck and said, hey, have a role in my movie, but be this cartoonist that the hero Zach like, is uh, aspires for. And Chuck's like, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Then gave him some lines. It's 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 a very it's a very sweet little role. Yeah, and then three years later, he shows up in Inner Space, another Joe Dante movie, holding a Bugs Bunny doll. And at that point, you're like, okay, these two, he's into the Joe Dante universe at this point because. What's great about Joe Dante as a director, and I've watched a ton of his films, both for this podcast, for Veracon, for a lot of things, is that he very much wears his influences not only on his sleeve, but like they're sort of like he's advertising them, like they're on his jacket and everything. He's a big fan of 1950s sci-fi movies. He's gotten Kevin McCarthy, who was the lead in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, to be in several of his movies, including Interspace, including Back in Action. He's a big fan of, like... 1950s B-movies, even to the point where he's gotten Dick Miller, who was in a lot of Lloyd Kaufman films and and B-movies and such, to be his, like, his go-to guy in all of his movies. Dick Miller is in pretty much every um, Joe Dante film, and he's great. Um, So Chuck Jones has sort of been inducted into that Joe Dante-verse alongside Robert Robert Picardo, Mary Warrenov, uh, Dick Miller and um, Kevin McCarthy, which is a really motley crew when you think about it. Yeah, um, pretty rad. But, but yeah, um, at the end of the day, Gremlins 2 is a Joe Dante film. 
Joe Dante really, really, really likes the Looney Tunes. Uh, Chuck Jones will be in as many of his films as he'll let him be in. Oh, and thematically it also works because the first Gremlins, and also this one, are very much influenced by the Looney Tunes and the melding of creature horror and cartoon slapstick is what makes Gremlins 2 such a wild and memorable film. Like, if you've seen Gremlins 2 one time, you will never forget it. There's so much wild shit in that movie that will just latch itself onto your brain and you will never get it out of your head. And I mean that in yes, a good way. I, I, it's one of those movies that I call the we're going to entertain the pants off of you. The the, yes. the critics may not love us, but goddamn, we're going to get... We're gonna give you the best ride of your life, and and it really boy howdy is Gremlins two one of those movies. I think another reason why the Looney Tunes are in this movie is that okay, and this is again this is the analysis I couldn't do on the first two because I haven't seen them. Gremlins two is about television, and the entirety of the action takes place in this movie in a building that houses a massive television studio, a clamp TV network. Uh, with all these channels and programs being filmed, you see all these characters that are filming their shows over the course of the movie. Robert Prosky, who coincidentally shows up in the next movie we're doing in, in a couple minutes, uh, plays this sort of um, Elvira um, uh, guy, you know, uh, late night uh, monster movie guy, and all these different other uh, characters. And what really it is about is about the homogenization and delusion of media due to massive network programming and corporate greed. Um, also homogenized and diluted by television, the Looney Tunes. <laughs> Ooh, it's not boy. like Warner Brothers um, started diluting the product because all, it was all going to TV. Or anything. I mean, um, I mean, my God, the the very first shot you see is a Time Warner production under the Warner Brothers picture logo. Yep. Warner Brothers by this point were a little bit diluted with buyouts, yep. and it wouldn't be the last. Ted Turner was sinking his teeth in. So maybe Joe Dante was trying to right a wrong and putting him by putting the Looney Tunes, Bugs and Daffy especially, back on a wide screen again. Now, granted, this would lead directly into back in action, but again, the corporate diluting of creativity mm. would create would continue. Would be there. worse in there. Actually, um, <laughs> it would be worse. It would be so much worse. But but yeah, it's very much to his point that like okay. TV is under attack by people who are trying to undermine its uh, values just for the sake of, um, you know, making money, much like Ted Turner. And we're still going to flank this movie with Bugs and Daffy being themselves. And we should probably get into what exactly Bugs and Daffy do in this sequence, because while it is brief, it's still pretty cool. Yes. So, the sequence begins... Like a classic Warner Brothers short opening. So it's the, the, the rings, Warner Brothers of Animation presents, the shield comes up, Bugs Bunny is on the shield, he's looking at the camera a bit too long, because as it turns out, it's Daffy taking over the opening. He's, he's, he's had it with Bugs Bunny being the center of attention for 50 years, which, which, that, that line also go, got me thinking, wait, was this also kind of a like a Bugs' 50th promotional thing we forgot to look over? But then I'm like, no, considering what they did with this opening, which we'll get into in about a minute, I think that was just timing. It's like, well, it's been about 50 years, so henceforth. Yeah. So Daffy just pushes Bugs off the shield, and he takes his place, and we get some nice Daffy sucks jokes. 
<laughs> okay, Mac, let's take it from the top. funny you may expect to hear from my attorney yeah and it's it's it feels like it's cut from the same cloth as a lot of the originals and it's 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 banter that's well tested first of all it's jeff bergman doing both yes. voices of bugs and daffy and in this era i think jeff bergman is very much trying to do uh a mel blank impression and that's why these sound accurately mel but maybe not accurately bugs and daffy i think his daffy is pretty good but it's going to take him a while to figure out, you know, his own his own spin on it versus trying to do Mel's. I mean, look, it, it, it's some good meta humor here because it's Daffy arguing with the logo, sort of throwing him like back and forth and things. It's it's, it's well animated, well time evokes even Duck Amuck. Um it's no, it's, it's a really cool start to this movie and it's it's the kind of cartoon mentality that you really need to sort of sink your teeth into before you really head into something like Gremlins the New Batch, which is a cartoon just in live action, essentially. <laughs> yeah, and also just, you know, I mean, again, I I should look to more of the trailers before we went on, but imagine if they didn't market, that's how the movie begins. Like, yeah, Gremlins 2, go, go watch Gremlins 2, go into the theater. Holy shit, it's the Looney Tunes! This is great! And then they get halfway through Gremlins 2. Holy shit, this is insane. I'm out of here. <laughs> yep. Hulk Hogan showed up. What is this? Um, there's also the ending of this movie, which is the same thing where it's uh, Daffy interrupting a That's All Folks <laughs> trying to take Porky's job and ends up being sideswiped by another title. Again, I love how meta a lot of these are and how they know they're introing a movie, fading out of a movie. They know their place and they're still trying to tamper with it. It's just fun. You know, if you can start your movie with the Looney Tunes, why wouldn't you start your movie with the Looney Tunes? And it's just a really nice first foot forward for a wild, um, <laughs> a wild ride that is that movie. Yeah. And so I'm giving this a uh, four out of five animals. Yeah, that's about what I'm giving it. Um, solid. You know, it's, it's a little, it's a little small, but uh, it's fine. Now, to quote a certain show, um, but that's not quite all, folks, because... A certain show is us. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Because, as it turns out, there was more to this opening. As a DVD bonus feature, they put up an extended sequence where it was like an alternate way to go into the... The film, so in the opening sequence, it's just, you know, Daffy gets the rings shrunk on him, Bugs yells out, roll it, as he spins Daffy around, and the turning of Daffy just jumps cut into Gremlins 2. Yeah. In this extended sequence, I assume it was the rings going to Daffy, Daffy spins, comes out of it, runs into a new room, and we get this, this other sequence, this this kind of title sequence going into the movie, where um, the driver's like, oh, I, well, when I talk to someone, and then Bugs comes back and goes, hey, Daffy, you've been promoted. And of course, Daffy's I mean, like, oh, well. <laughs> Which is never a good sign. Never good. As it turns out, Daffy is in charge of inserting the titles. Which, hey, okay, sure. 
So, you know, I said, that's like, okay, I'm going to read you the, this copy. You just write down the title. Daffy's like, oh, well, of course I know how to do this. I was like, okay, it's Gremlins 2. And then I get to the screen. Daffy wrote Gremlins 2. Ha. And of course, Buck is like, no, uh, let me fake help you with that. Gremlins 2. And of course, Daffy isn't okay with that. He just goes on more. And it's like, the return of Super Duck, which, okay, nice. Nice reference. Like, the return of Super Duck in Versus Gremlins 2 Part 6, the movie, or some some insane title. It's it's over the top, yeah. And, of course, uh, Buck is like, yeah, okay. Uh, how did they even end? It was just like, Buck's going, okay, well, no, that's all wrong. You're fired. Get out of here, whatever. And then, um, and then eventually they get down back to Gremlins 2. Then Bugs looks at the computer screen going. That looks a little bland. Let me add some more. And then, presumably, we would then cut to Gremlins 2, the new batch. And then the movie begins. Yeah. It's, um. Yeah, probably. Oh. I don't, oh. There's like the one good note I had about it. Um, so Bugs sees the long title and goes, let me help you with that. And he hits a button that just says too long, which the irony which, irony because this <laughs> <laughs> irony is it's it's a it, this sequence drags. Yeah, it's for being too long. Yeah, it's um I know Joe has his issue with Warner Brothers as a studio, Cameron with his movies. This I think was a good call. It it, it does kind of stop yeah, it dead because like if, if it was just. Bugs and Daffy doing more slapstick that was cut out. Okay, fine. Then, oh my god, you essentially cut a Looney Tunes cartoon out of this movie. How dare you? But for, for what it is, it's just... Okay, it's kind of just Bugs and Daffy talking and some cheap title jokes. So, you know. Yeah. I'd give it like a like a 2 out of 5. Yeah, yeah 2.5. I mean, it's still good. Yeah. It's just it goes on a bit too long. And I, I, I like what we got. Yeah. So... <laughs> This is Doubtfire. Let's just continue going on this movies that Jordan and Mark adore train with Mrs. Doubtfire, one of our favorites. Oh, one of my favorites. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. Love it so much. The whole thing, and this is a very small part of the film, but it's it's the opening, I think. And it's like, because the whole thing is that um, our hero, Daniel Hillard, uh, played by Robin Williams, is doing a bunch of odd jobs at the t- TV studio, and he's trying to get a job, I believe, as a voice actor for this new cartoon. And if I recall correctly, because usually I, 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 I turn onto the movie as it's, like, past this scene, but um, I don't recall this audition going very well. <laughs> um, no, so um, the, the issue is that the very end of this cartoon is the parakeet starts smoking because the cat puts the cigarette in the in the bird's mouth yeah. and rob williams doesn't like that he's a father he doesn't want this cartoon to be shown to children he just goes <laughs> oh i will not do this i cannot oh what a foul way for a bird to die i don't want to get big cancer no my lungs are blackened Here we go again cut what are you doing Daniel, that line is not in the script. Why did you add it? And there's a great joke where 
where Robin just looks up at the control booth. It's like, okay, you in the control booth. Do you think it's okay to tell children of America that smoking is okay? They get the control booth and everyone's smoking. <laughs> yes. It's it, it's a great opening scene. Too. Yeah. But like the crux of this scene is this cartoon, which is a Chuck Jones cartoon made specifically for this movie. Yeah. Which is lost very much in the shuffle of this movie being as great as it is. Like, oh yeah, it's, it's a great movie. Robin Williams movie. Starts with a Chuck Jones cartoon. Also, uh, uh, have point is, I think this may be an IMDb goofs under, like, culture or something, but it is funny how he's voiced in the cartoon as the full cartoon is fully animated and scored and there's sound effects. Like, yeah. that's not how cartoons work. It's not really how it works, but, like, whatever. It's a movie. We're having fun. Yeah. But yeah, um, it's it's very cool that they were able to get Chuck Jones like, hey, do a new Chuck Jones cartoon. And it's funny, in addition to this scene, we, um, I also watched a uh, behind-the-scenes kind of thing where Chuck Jones is talking about his uh, artistic process. And Chuck Jones talks about, because it's, 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 it's a, a very sassy bird playing an aristocrat uh, versus an aristocratic cat. And Chuck Jones is talking about, well, they said we should do uh, a bird and a cat, but a different bird and a cat. And I'm like, well, it's, it's like asking somebody to do a, a different mouse, like a new mouse. But he's still, I mean, I will say, these two characters are still very specific and very, you know, patterned out and are able to have nice dialogue in between each other without coming off as too offensive or too brash or anything like. And also, the best part about this cartoon is that all the characters are voiced by Robin Williams. Yes. It's a Chuck Jones animated cartoon in which Robin Williams is kind of Mel Blanking it by being the only person in the cartoon. That's like two of my favorite things yes. combined. That's amazing. Well, actually three, because yes. this Doubtfire is a fantastic movie. So it's oh, it is. Uh, it's so great. And what I love is that um, also in the same interview, Chuck talks about working with Robin Williams. And he's like really praising Robin. He really likes how Robin Williams was yeah. able to work with him on, on this cartoon, which is just Great. Yeah, and they got to be pretty friendly too, which is great. But that definitely explains why Robin gave Chuck his uh, his Oscar in that case, because like they're just yes. good friends. And what's great is that um, for years I didn't know this that the short that played in front of Miss Doubtfire wasn't just a two minute clip; it's actually a five minute cartoon. It's a full cartoon they made. Which also has me thinking, like, but why? I mean, yes, if you're going to ask Chuck Jones to make a cartoon for you, by all means, make a full cartoon. But you can tell at the end, there was an end point. Because it doesn't end. It just Definitely. stops. It just sort of stops. So it's yeah. this thing where, like, if I had to guess, maybe the original plan was it begins with the cartoon. You just you're just watching this random cartoon. It's like, oh, what's this? And yeah. then we just cut to Ron Williams at the very end doing his thing about the bird. You're like, oh, okay. So now we're in the movie, which would have been great, but no, because you know timing. The, the, it probably went too long if, if, if you did that. But um, but yeah, this is a full Chuck Jones cartoon that they put in front of a 20th Century Fox movie, which means this this. Looney yes. Tunes ask short is owned by Disney. <laughs> That's the weird part. Oh, which boy. sort of it, it's 
it's it's you know because obviously it's a Fox film because it's Chris Columbus directing this. He'd done the Home Alones, so even if this does feel like a WB cartoon, which I mean, and they they even make a Treasures of the Armadre reference in the middle of this, which is a WB product. It's still Fox, which is interesting. The cartoon itself, I think, honestly, incredible. Chuck Jones animates this insanely well. He creates this fresh new duo. It's going all over the place, all over the house. Um, all of these very Chuck Jonesian gag mentality things that are happening. Um, you know, it, it's it's Robin Williams doing amazing voices and great back and forths. This feels like like very reminiscent of a lot of Golden Age Warner Brothers stuff. And it works, and it keeps moving at this wonderful pace. And, you know, you, it, it's almost like... You, it's a point I'm making with the next one, but, like, it feels like they should have, like, began this with the full cartoon. Like, you're starting it with a short. Like, you get a cartoon, and then you go into the movie, and, okay, here's what actually happened with it. But, oh, man, I love this. I, I, I kind of wish this was a real thing, because, like, you know... A new series of shorts starring Robin Williams, directed by Chuck Jones. What a world that was! Oh man, that's but, a, where um, do I live in? But yeah, there's some great details in here because, like, the short begins with the birds singing opera because, of course, it is. Yes. <laughs> and um, there's some nice details I like here because we cut to the caretaker, who's also voiced by Robin Williams, and there's a very particular portrait behind her of a bearded man with glasses wearing a bow tie. And this was 93, as the production of the short was around 92, 91. So my first guess is that's Chuck doing a tribute to uh, Ted Geisel, who passed away in 91. Probably, so, yes. Th- 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 that's yes. very nice. And um, there's also some nice, um, there's two eat your heart out jokes. Yes, one for Meryl Streep, the other for Julia Child, which, hmm, I wonder if Robin was riffing. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think their house phone was a riff. Mother, betrayal, kidnapped, no, kidnap. Please help, help, help. Eat your heart out, Meryl Streep. I love how, how there's a very short list of Chuck Jones characters telling Hollywood stars to go to drop dead. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. There's just some great lines I love here. I love how there's a moment where the cat's following the bird and the end... The, the bird just stops the cat dead and just walks over and says, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but are you following me? I like that. It's almost like a reverse Pepe Le Pew. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorite cartoon phrases. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me, sorry. I also just really liked um, the sequence where uh, the cat is sort of hanging in midair and the, and, um, the bird goes, oh, first rule of animation is you, can, you can't fall if you don't look down. And he's trying so hard not to. And it, again, it, it goes back into great gag logic. And I love that like, it's, it's almost metatextual. Oh, man. And just, it, it, it's, almost, it's almost one of the community-esque in the way that, that, that that's executed. It's just... Falls down, his face is, is still there, but his eyes fall off and his nose just falls to the ground. It's like, fantastic. And just, no, yeah, the expression work, where the parakeet has its head to a magnifying glass, and there's this blown up great Chuck Jones expression, where it's like, oh my god, yeah, that, 
that's definitely that's definitely stuff we uh, uh, uh yeah yeah Chuck cartoon and um and it, it gets to a point where you almost kind of forget this is part of a movie like, it's so good it's like yeah this is really good this is really good and then we get to the ending where and it just stops <laughs> yeah where like the the cat gets the bird it's about to it was about to it's about to eat the bird says it'll eat your heart out and and so I noticed in the cartoon, I think the bird has a line about cancer, like beats cancer or something. Yeah. Like if he was to die, it would be better than having cancer. But in the movie, mm-hmm. that line's taken out as it's just Robin riffing, saying not to not to eat him. But uh, yeah, the cartoon just kind of stops with a repeat of the parakeet smoking to give him mm-hmm. enough time to cut back to a uh, live action footage. And that just stops. I will say, the the most clever detail about this cartoon that we haven't mentioned yet is that we've said that Robin Williams does all the voices. He also does the voices of the sort of granny figure. Uh-huh. And what's a great foreshadower of what this movie ends up becoming is that his voice for the granny figure is probably his best voice of the three. And it's very much foreshadowing that he's going to use that voice for um, Mrs. Doubtfire. That's nice, children. Just don't fight. That actually could have been context line. Oh, damn. So this was supposed to play at the, at the beginning then, if that's in there. So I will say something that I really did like about this cartoon is that it does feel like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Because I think there's a very, there could have been a very thin line in this where it could have felt Tom and Jerry-esque, you know, with, with, the, the, with the cat and the bird. But um, no, it definitely feels like a Looney Tunes-centric product. And um, you know, Robin does a great job. The animation is fantastic. I uh, just wish there was more of this, honestly. Yeah, me too. I absolutely love this. Great pacing, great voice work. Adds wonderfully to the beginning of this film. It's it's as if Mrs. Doubtfire couldn't be any more perfect. I, I love this. So I'm giving this a 4.5 out of 5 animals. I'm giving it a 5 out of 5. That's fair. And finally. So we looked at a couple of Chuck Jones uh, works after the Looney Tunes era. But uh, Chuck wasn't the only Looney Tunes director to do some film work after the studio closed. Yeah. Um, famously, uh, DePatty Freeling, DePatty Freeling tried to create a bunch of original characters that didn't work <laughs> at all. I mean, if you're going with Cool Cat, well, Cool Cat's like a seven you arts. Probably got a lot well, of cool great cats, ideas. Cool Cat's kind of seven arts, which we we'll get to later. But. Um, mm. Their big hit was doing the work on the Pink Panther animation sequence for Blake Edwards's Pink Panther series. Now, Jordan, I know you love these films, so for those who don't know... I do! They're great! <laughs> do I need to give any more details about them for those who don't... Uh, yes, know? yes, okay. I didn't know that you were giving me the floor to do that. Okay. Pink Panther movies. All right, cool. Pink Panther movies. Blake Edwards in 1964 decides that he's going to do a fun little comedy mystery starring David Niven and throwing in uh, Peter Sellers as this sort of bumbling inspector. Unfortunately, he fails to realize that the hook of this film, which is clearly um, David Niven as the thief, is being underscored and being overshadowed by this bumbling inspector, Clouseau, played by Sellers. So when doing his next film, A Shot in the Dark, he decides, you know what? Part of me wants Clouseau in this one as well, because it was going to be a straight adaptation. And so 
it becomes, all right, let's just keep bringing this Clouseau guy in, a, in all these other adventures, and it becomes this full franchise. It's one of those probable franchises of the 1970s. It's a surefire box office hit every couple of years then, outer, being on the top 10 earners lists in all of those. Um, Peter Sellers gets his flagship character from there to, to his dying day. And um, a lot of those movies are great showcases for amazing gag work, slapstick, comedy, all of the above. I loved watching them as a kid. I still get a kick out of watching them now. Um, one of the highlights of these, and this is a staple of all of the Peter Sellers ones, were these animated opening sequences done by the DePatty Freeling crew. And they were so uh, popular that they spawned their own animated series, which would also spawn the uh, Ant and the Aardvark, and Um <laughs> One day we'll do that, I guess. Um, and um, yeah, no, it's it's these are just as famous as the movies themselves, up to the point where a lot of people don't know that the Pink Panther character itself isn't actually a character in the film. It's just something that Freeling and Gang made. So, Mark, you picked one of these. You picked the one from the last uh, Sellers film that he was alive for, uh, Revenge of the Pink Panther from yes. 1978, which I think is pretty good. Yeah, Not the best, but I think it's pretty good. I was gonna pick a, a different one. Uh, that that one was based off of like movies. I'm thinking, oh, that woman. Yeah, I remember that one. But it's not done by DePatty Freeling. That one was done by Richard Williams. Oh, okay. I like that one a lot too. But yeah, no, and mostly most of these were DePatty Freeling, which is pretty cool. So this one in particular is pretty much par for the course for a lot of these Pink Panther opening sequences, but it's. It's very much go owing to the gag mentality of the Warner Brothers era in that you have this bumbling inspector who always is foiled by this Pink Panther who's almost like a never-gets-hurt type like the Roadrunner. But, you know, there's never any dialogue. There never needs to be any. It's just funny seeing the Pink Panther getting blown up whenever he tries to do something throughout the entirety of the opening sequence and opening credits of these movies. Like, and you see some classic uh, Warner Brothers gags in here. For instance, the... Ribbon Around the Gun Barrel was a classic Warner Brothers gag that Chuck used mm -hmm. in some Wile E. Coyotes. Um, but there's just lots of little gags strewn about the, the credits, which would be otherwise a boring part of this, that make it really amusing. And it makes you feel like you've gotten a cartoon with your movie. Yes. Um, one of my favorite gags, and this happens twice in the sequence, is when the words come to life. Yeah! Of the actors. There's one where, like... Um, uh, I, I believe it's Herbert Lom, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Herbert Lom. Yeah, who uh, who's like his last name comes alive to a barking dog and bites and bites the inspector, which is great. <laughs> I like that. Now, there's so many cool moments in this, and again, there's some that I prefer to this one, but I think this is a really nice one to end, quote unquote, regulation because they would make the tri uh, the trail of the Pink Panther. Which would be uh, after uh, what do you call it? You know, after death. Peter Sellers would die, um, and they still want to make another one, which says a lot about what movie making around then. Uh, what kind of studio would see their main star die and still want to make a sequel to something? Oh, what's that? I'm hearing uh, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever made a lot of money this year. Um, <laughs> never mind. Yeah, these were these were good. Um, again, I, I like that the, the I mean these opening sequences were always decent, and they're done quickly, one gag after the other, and so it really feels like the movies beginning with the cartoon. I already said that, but I also I kind of dig a lot of the movies that are like that that have these sort of opening sequences that are animated. I know the City Slickers movies would do that. Honey, I blew up the kid, and also use that metric, 
But I think these are the best of them, the Pink Panther ones. Um, they, I mean, they very much feel like Warner Brothers animation pieces. Pieces and I mean, and, there's also like also like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation that yes. begins them in sequence. By the way, and there's one thing I haven't said about this uh, opening sequence yet is that the even though this is a Patty Freeling production, it says in the it says in the credits designed by Art Leonardi and John Dunn, which. Yeah, by this time, John Dunn was was practically an executive at the Patty Freeling by this point. He's the best writer we ever had. Michael who? Warren who? We have the goddamn receipts for his... I think he was a great writer. I just can't think of any reasons why at the moment. What should have What should have happened? It should have gone like... Just get like... Have like a, a Lean Tunes film festival, right? A Frizz Freeling film festival... You invite Frizz. You show like six of the six cartoons. Five of them are by Michael and Ted and Warren, right? And you throw one John Dunn in there. And you come out at the end of the festival. Frizz, could you identify which one of the cartoons you like best? Yes, it was the John Dunn one. I like John Dunn. He's a good guy. Well, it, it would be amazing. It's like, well, actually, I uh, Roman Legion hair was actually pretty good. Ah, really? Yeah. Do you know who wrote Roman Legion Hair? John oh, Dunn. John Dunn. <laughs> no, actually. Can we get the writer Roman Legion? <laughs> and and if you get the writer Roman Legion Hair out, it's like Ted Pierce or whatever. It's like yeah. you son of a bitch. <laughs> you killed John Dunn. <laughs> it's just a chaotic version of This Is Your Life, essentially. Pretty much. <laughs> which hey, that, that, hey, that's a Legion's cartoon. Which yeah, we'll get to later. Yeah. Um, um, anyways. Uh, we're rolling. Wow, we are we're losing the plot here. So, Pink Panther. These are it's, good. It's really good. Yeah. It's really good. Um, there's a lot of loony adjacent gags in here that that, that still hold up. Um, like like the, you know, speaking of of uh, oh, we're not, this is not the card I was talking about. But speaking of uh, cartoons, that's dumb. Shubu's bugs. There's the split in half gag essentially from yes, Shubu's bugs where. Uh, or, you know, there's, like, gunfire, and Spider thinks he's finally jumps, and he realizes he's been cut in half, which, ha, it, it still works. The action still works. No, these are good. I, I like this one. That's not my favorite of these, but I like it. I give this one a 3.5 out of 5. Same. I'm giving this a 3.5 out of 5 as well. All right. Uh, so, curiosity, uh, Jordan, which one is your favorite? Well, uh, I didn't know it was uh, not a freeling one until today, but I like the one that you were talking about where he's in all the movies. Well, expand on that. Yeah, no, I, I I wasn't meaning to like do this in this way because I literally had no idea Richard Williams did that one. Yeah, did, did, yeah, like neither did I. And I said like, don't like Richard Williams. I'm like, ah, shit. <laughs> Damn. Well, at the same time, I'm like, can't we look at something else Richard Williams has done? <laughs> well, <laughs> folks, so. For next week's episode. So, um, we should we should explain this diplomatically and respectfully. We had yes. a, a collab planned for the last episode of the year. Logistically, things didn't work out, so we're going to be doing that collab sometime next year. Don't worry, nobody died. It's all good. Um, it's all good. We're all, all good. we're all wonderful. Um, and so we were like, okay, we have this giant gaping hole in our schedule now. How do we fill it? We don't want to go ahead of the, the we don't want to go ahead of ourselves and do King Tweety yet. What other loony movie we can can we talk about? 
And then we figured we should give ourselves a little Christmas treat and talk about one of our, both of our favorite movies of all time. Yes, because, you know, this entire, this entire little series has been about Lean Tunes as a brand, Lean Tunes as an IP. How this episode is about Lean Tunes in the movies. And, I mean, look, the episode we were going to do was a IP synergy crossover film done for the sake of greed. So, we were thinking, why not do an IP brand crossover movie, but instead of being done for greed, it's done for good! Yeah. So, we're going to do Who Framed Roger Rabbit next week. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Mark's, I think, number one favorite movie of all time? Is yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 And it's yeah, very it's, high it's my on favorite my list. Movie. This movie is everything that is great about movie making. Everything that is great about animation, we are going to talk about why it is so good, why it is so well-remembered, why all y'all love it. And we're going to be asking a lot of the same questions that we asked in this episode, especially, why are the Looney Tunes here? Why is Bugs Bunny here? Especially here on the screen with these people and these characters. We're going to go in-depth. We are going to do a deep dive in this movie, because I think it's what y'all... Uh, deserve. We haven't done a real deep dive on a movie in a while. And we want to get back to doing some of those for not just Looney Tunes movies, but to movies that we grew up with that were definitely influenced by the Looney Tunes. We have another idea for one of those eventually that I think you guys will really like. But yes, next week is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I think you all are going to really enjoy it. Uh, I know I will. <laughs> and I certainly will too. So that's the end of this week's episode. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow me at Mark Hallam, 1995. And you can follow me at Tall Guy Schmidt. If you'd like to keep up with the podcast or give your thoughts for next week's movie episode, you can follow at that underscore loony or type in the podcast title. We are the first result. You can also find our podcast wherever podcasts are readily available. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Player FM, Anchor, Stitcher, Amazon Music. We're also on YouTube. We've got a channel pumping out videos every two or so weeks. We've got some fun stuff down the pipeline that I think you'll enjoy. All right. So until next week, I'm Mark. And I'm Jordan. And remember, if we weren't doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit next week, we'd probably, in an alternate universe, be doing the two guys from Denver or some shit. But you'll have to settle for this universe. So we'll see you then. <laughs>